Hi, so this is Mike Spivey with the Spivey Consulting Group, and we're doing something a little different today. I am privileged to have a friend of mine, Dave Kalorin, with me, and we're going to be asking each other questions. And unless you disagree, Dave, I'm just going to dive right into a question. No, I say go right ahead. And by the way, the privilege is all mine. So thanks for having me. And th- thanks again. I know you and I, know, I can remember when we met years ago at the, I think it was the Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport is where we met. I think of so. all places. You're right. So, but for our target audience and the people who listen to us and all the other people who are going to hear this podcast, how did you get into this crazy world of LSAT instruction? <laughs> well, it was an accident, like a lot of things in life that turn out well. And in my case, it wasn't as if I was a 12-year-old kid thinking, I want to grow up and teach the LSAT. So it was never like a goal of mine. I actually was in Los Angeles and um, was doing a bunch of random things. And I had a friend who was like, you should teach LSAT classes. I was familiar with the test. And so I started doing that for Kaplan of all companies. And that was really instructive because it taught me a lot about the way I didn't want to do certain things in business and, and teaching. And I didn't really like the approach they had. And so eventually my friend and I left and started our own company. And that has kind of progressed eventually over time to where now I have power score. So it's a twisted tale if you go deep back into it, but it's been a lot of fun along the way. It's a twisted tale that obviously progressed in really meaningful directions. So you did something right along the way. I like to think that we've gotten a little bit of luck in there and we've also worked really hard. And so from my perspective, we've made some missteps in terms of some of the things that we've done. We've gone down avenues that maybe uh, I wouldn't go back down. But by and large, we've always tried to say if we do what we think is right for the student and we try to do it as best as we possibly can, we think it's going to turn out. And that really has proven to be the case over time. So I think right now we're in a great position. And from day one, I loved working with students. I still love working with students now. And as long as we have that passion that kind of is driving us, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Sounds familiar. I like it. Speaking of which, the reverse question I think is fair as well. Spivey is obviously a huge brand in terms of admissions consulting. You guys are really successful. How did you get into it? Kind of like you, how I got into this was entirely by chance. As a 12-year-old, I wasn't dreaming of being an admissions (laughs) officer or admissions consultant. If I were to show the world my high school application to college, so my college application, I think we'd be out of business in like three weeks. It was that bad. (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing. But I happened to teach business ethics after business school and fell in love with academia and teaching. And I had this plan of being a college president. So I went to Vanderbilt to get my doctoral degree. Part of that process is I did it part-time so I could work. And that work was at the law school. I was like a low-level, I think my my first title, I was like 23 years old. And I was admissions coordinator was my title. $33,000 was my salary. And I, it seemed like big money. I could buy video games. <laughs> So I got along very well with my boss there, Kent Severud, who's the chancellor of a university now. He was the dean of the law school and got to move up that ladder. And it was neat. I mean, you know, admissions was great. File reading, getting to know applicants, getting to admit applicants, traveling on the road to meet applicants. All that stuff was really rewarding. The higher up I got, though, on the, you know, I started going up the decanal. There's a word you don't hear very often. But I started going up the decanal ladder. 
the higher up I got, the less I enjoyed it because I was meeting applicants less frequently. I was in meetings more frequently. And, you know, I got to the point in my career where I was in charge of multiple departments and all I was doing was in meetings and I didn't even know, you know, I would check my schedule the night before and I wasn't even sure who the people in the meetings were, how it got placed on my schedule. Typical. And I think it's worthy to note that a lot of people have aspirations of a legal career and sometimes it's not quite what you thought it might be. And it's never wrong if you're not rewarded to change career paths. Yeah. So along this time when I'm sort of getting busier and busier and less control of my life work-wise, message boards popped up. And, you know, early on, or I shouldn't just say early on because it's true today, but early on there was this really bad advice. So someone would say something on a message board and a lot of people would agree. And I'm sitting back reading thinking, you know, you want to do the exact opposite of this. But I couldn't say anything because I was at a school. So I had to just read this bad advice after bad advice. And that was like the tipping point. I don't know if it was like an aha moment, but there was a day where I remember thinking, you know, I'm just going to stop what I'm doing career-wise because I could always jump back into it and start this firm. And to the best of our ability, if nothing else, we can correct some of this bad advice online. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And, you know, even up to this cycle, this cycle is challenging and rewarding because it's a unique cycle. And that's a word I don't use very often, but the cycle itself is unique. Let's you just mentioned this cycle. So let's let's move right to that. There's been a ton of questions coming up recently. You've you've posted some data that I thought was really interesting. The first question is, how has the LSAT flex affected the competitiveness in this cycle? And then maybe extrapolate further to what does this cycle look like in general? So how has the LSAT flex changed this cycle and, you know, in in general, what's going to happen in this cycle? Interesting questions. The first question I would really like to throw back at you because, you know, I look at the data every morning. I wake up and and I look at the volume report data. I think today scores 175 to 180 are up 116%. There are already more of those scores, I think 376, than there were total two cycles ago. And we're like early November. I mean, it's, it's just crazy numbers. 170 to 174, up 64.9%. So something funky is going on at the top. The applications themselves are up 59%, I believe. But you have a 116% increase at the top bandwidth and a 65% increase at the second highest bandwidth. Something is askew. You'll talk about it, I hope, but I'm not sure what it is. I have theories, and, and I bounce theories around other people, and no one quite knows why the scale is so strange right now. Obviously, it's making the cycle more competitive at the top. You think about it in such practical, easy terms. You would much rather be in a cycle where 100 people apply versus 200,000, right? It's obvious that 100 people applying would make the cycle easier. 200,000 would make it more difficult. And you would much rather be in a cycle where the score is 170 and above, even if you're like a 150 score because it has a bleed down effect, a domino effect. You would much rather be in a cycle with the scores 170 above or down or in any bandwidth, because right now in every bandwidth, scores are up. Right. So it's going to be a long cycle. It's going to be a slow cycle for a lot of people, particularly if you're a splitter yeah. or reverse splitter. And it's going, to, it's going to feel slow. I don't know how else to say it. I think, based on several data points that are mostly anecdotal, talking to deans of law schools, deans of admissions, et cetera, 
I think two things are going to happen that are positive. One is I think in aggregate, we'll see an increase in class sizes. So let's call that 10%. Let's say class sizes increase 10%. The second thing you're going to see is this number of 59.1% up right now is going to come down. There's disagreement amongst other people who I talk to, but I personally think it's going to come down abruptly. I think there's going to be a moment, you know, late November, early December, mid-December, where the application inflow, like, boom, hits a brick wall and stops. So you go from like 50% up in December 1 to 30% up January 1. That's my theory alone. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just based on instincts of 20 plus years of doing this and thinking about how front loaded this cycle may be. So, you know, there's going to be a cooling off to make this cycle less competitive seeming than it seems right now. Right now, it seems incredibly competitive and it's going to be incredibly slow for some people. But I do think there's going to be a cooling off. And I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of people admitted in the later months, December, January, February, March, April, May, that there's going to be a lot of happy people. It just doesn't look quite as promising right now as I think it will in a month or two. Yeah, you and I have the same exact perspective on this, which is that it will be more competitive, but good candidates will still get in. And as far as that LSAT flex, I call it the high score bubble. Because it's just has ballooned in a way that I think is unusual. And, you know, the LSAT flex part of that, the LSAT flex is fueling this. And I think part of it may be because of a little bit of difficulty with them actually making scales for these exams and understanding how the different environment of the LSAT flex compares to the kind of old paper and pencil or, or the digital experience in a room. Uh, You are probably aware that they recently released the May 2020 flex scale, or at least one of them. And when we looked at it, it was remarkably loose to us. And that's a good thing if you're a high scorer, because the more questions you can miss, the better off it is for you. And so I wonder if they've had some difficulty getting it exactly right, because some of these tests have seen where the feedback that we get from an LSAT perspective and as an LSAT company has been mind blowing. I've had just student after student contacting me saying, you're not going to believe the score I got. I'm so happy. Thank you. And that's happened for several of these flex tests, and that, I think, has fueled this balloon. So if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're thinking, um, I'm screwed, you're not screwed. There will be more seats available at law schools this year, as Mike said. And I think also, if you have good numbers, law schools are going to want to take you regardless. I know it, it's distressing, but I don't think it's going to be catastrophically bad or even really all that bad, hopefully. You know, what's interesting to me is for 19 or 20 years, I heard so many people say, I'm practicing at X, and we'll just call X 165. And then they would take their first test and they would ping me back and they would say, you know, I'm disappointed I scored a 160 or a 162. And one thing I've noticed since LSAT flex days is I don't get nearly as many of those I scored lower than I'm practicing at type inquiries like why did that happen what should i do if there's variability it seems to be in an upward direction not a downward direction does that make sense are you seeing the same thing yeah you actually it's almost like an echo some of the things i've said before so you and i are thinking exactly on the same line here one of the things i've pointed out to people is that with only 75 questions and no experimental section that what you're seeing is a greater degree of variability 
some people really love this format. It suits their strengths, and it seems like the scores that are being produced have a wider standard deviation. They have greater degree of variability than you saw on the former tests. We still see some students who are like, you know, I was testing at 165, and then I can see them on the internet, and they're like, I got a 160. But I see a lot more people who are saying, I got a 165 as a practice test score on average, and I got a 170 as my actual test score. Right. I'm seeing that too. Exactly. Yeah. And LSAC has not really given out a tremendous amount of data about what's happening. You guys have seen some of the data I have as well, and we can see those numbers at the top creeping up. Maybe creeping is the wrong word, exploding upward. Exploding, right. (laughs) Yeah, so we know it's happening. It's hard to say exactly why, because there's so many different possible causes to what's going on here. It's it's interesting, you know, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the next few tests when when the scores come out. Yeah, obviously every test, what I'm hoping for is it's great and everybody gets the highest score they've ever had. (laughs) Well, that leads to to some other questions I have for you about how to get a high (laughs) score, but I can't even remember whose turn it is to ask a question. I'm going to ask the next question. Bring it. And then, then you can hit me with those questions. One of the things that happens at this time of year is that we get a lot of questions about applying early versus applying later. And the question that you often hear is, I know that applying early is something the law schools would like, and it supposedly gives you an advantage. Should I apply now, even though I don't have maybe the numbers, the LSAT score that I want, or should I take it in January, take the LSAT in January, and then apply then with what was presumptively, hopefully a higher score? What's your take on that? Yeah, the notion of applying early, I think, is overstated amongst applicants every year. So I'll explain the concept of rolling admission, because to begin with, I think it's people don't really see it from the admissions, from the law school side of things. And I think it's different in undergrad admissions, where sometimes results really do roll sequentially. But in admissions, files aren't read by when their date stamp completed. You obviously have to have a file that's completed to be read. But at that stage, admissions offices are sorting through to find the strong ones first. So you see every year scenarios where applicant number one applies in September and gets a result in October. Applicant number two applies the same day in September and literally gets a result in April. And, you know, that creates so much dissonance online. Like, you know, how is it that I can see that these people applied in September and so did I, but I haven't heard yet. Well, here's the thing. Let's say you're, you know, typical applicant and you're savvy, you're applying in September and you're applying to safeties, sort of mid-level target schools and then stretch schools. Well, sure enough, those safeties are going to read your file in September or October (laughs) and you'll get your result and it's highly likely going to be an admit. And probably, particularly if, you know, if you're right on the bubble, but you did things well, those target schools are going to do the same thing. might be a little bit slower, but they're going to read your file pretty quickly. If you're helping them, then you're getting admitted. But that doesn't equate to a bump by applying early. It simply equates to there's something about you that helps the school. And this is where I think you can really see sort of the emphasis on that there's not as much of a bump. Those stretch schools you're applying to, if you're applying to them in September, they're not interested in you. I hate to say it like that. And they might be interested in you later for any number of awesome reasons. But in September, October, November, December, they are not interested in you. So you're not going from like a 30% chance of admission to a 51% chance because you got your application in September 1. 
back on your side of things, what would make you go from a 30% chance to a 51% chance would be if you're too below their median LSAT, you retake the LSAT in January, you get a plus three, so now you're plus one, you're above their median LSAT, all of a sudden they become a lot more interested in you. So what we counsel as many people as we can is don't worry so much about the submission deadline date because law schools, I can assure you, don't. It's not like a signal to them of interest. If you apply ED, that is a signal of interest. But if you apply in September, they're not thinking, oh, this person is more interested than the person that applies in December. What we try to counsel people is submit your best application. If that's in September, awesome. But if your best application is January because you know you're trending upward in your diagnostic LSAT testing, then submit in December or January or February because they would much rather have a strong applicant than an early applicant. See, yeah, that's a really interesting point that you make there. And a lot of times what we hear is, is that someone's like, well, I'll get a big bump by applying early. And that seems to come around every cycle. I'm really hearing it a lot this cycle. So it's good to hear what you have to say about that. It strikes me a little bit like somebody who's planning on going out on a date. And there's a person who shows up an hour early and they're not really ready for the date, but they've showed up an hour early because they're so interested. And that's weird. <laughs> you know, hopefully right. no one's doing that out there. But right. the point, you'd be a lot better served if you showed up on time, but having everything ready to go. You looked good, you know, everything was set. You'd taken care of everything. And that's kind of like what applying to law school is in this context is just applying early isn't going to do it. You need to have every piece of the puzzle put in place and as good as it possibly can be. Now, let me ask you one kind of follow-up scenario. I've taken the LSAT before, I'm now applying, I put my application in in September or November, and then I decide I wanna take the LSAT in January. So I already have a score on record, my application is technically complete, right. but I now decide I'm gonna take January, I go ahead and sign up for that. What do the law schools do with that? Yeah, it's tricky because different schools do different things. I mean, this gets to really the nuance level based on a law school. I'm not going to name law schools in this podcast, but for example, there's a T3 law school that it doesn't matter what you do or say, you know, they'll see that you're registered for January. But if you submit your application and you have a score, they will first read your application. Not only will they first read it, but at this school, the first reader's rating of you, it more often than not outweighs the second reader's opinion. So it's school dependent. So what I just said doesn't help anyone listening. So what we tell, you know, as a general matter, the, the helpful part, because the first part of the answer wasn't helpful, is if you think you have a good shot at that school with your current test score, go ahead and apply. It is highly likely one of two things are going to happen. If you are a strong candidate, it's likely they will admit you and then wait for that second score. And then most schools don't give scholarship money when they admit you anyways. So they'll wait for that second score. And then, you know, if you score better, enjoy your extra $40,000 scholarship or $60,000 scholarship and enjoy the fact that you were admitted in October. The second possibility, which also happens with a good deal of frequency, is so they run reports. They will see you can't hide from them that you're registered from the for the <laughs> January LSAT. I mean, there are some schools that run reports a lot less often than others, but most do it on an almost daily basis. So at some schools, the second they see you're registered for January, they're probably gonna hold up and do nothing. 
Okay. Because they always would rather see what your highest score is going to be before they make decisions. So, you know, in these scenarios, if you have a test score and you register for a future test, definitely don't apply to a school. And you have to be introspective and honest with yourself. Definitely do not apply to a school that you think might even be borderline chances of denying you. If you think the school is going to admit you, already impressed with you, already impressed with your numbers, Go for it. Submit it. It's not going to hurt you. You're either going to get an admit or they're going to slow roll you. But they're certainly not going to deny you for taking the test again. Good. Good advice. I think that clears up a lot of misconceptions. And now you owe me a question. Well, it's, it's going to be similarly based. This is a question that I've actually never asked anyone, but I have pondered in my head. Can you improve your LSAT score to begin with? I think I know the answer to, to that. But m- <laughs> what's, what's more interesting to me is can you do it in a short amount of time? So, you know, let's say I just got my LSAT score back from November and I think I can do better. Can I do three points better in January? The short answer is yes. The way I look at LSAT preparation and the LSAT itself is it's a skill. What does it test? It tests your ability to do well on the LSAT. And for many people, even if they read a book or two, if they do a bunch of prep tests, they don't really know what it is that the test makers want. And there's a lot of different tools you can avail yourself of to learn more about this. But in some ways, it's like getting a personal trainer. If I jog every day and I lift some weights and I try to eat generally pretty well, you know, I'll be in decent shape. But if I really want to get into great shape, it helps to have somebody there who can say, no, you're doing this wrong. Don't eat that food. You need to jog less and you need to do wind sprints more. That's really what LSAT preparation looks like on a really high level, is getting information that shapes and refines how you approach this. Each person is different, and that's one of the things that makes this so challenging. There's not just a single answer, a silver bullet for everybody where it's like, do this and you automatically add three, four, or five points. Some people are naturally great at logic games, but they struggle with reading. Other people are great readers, but logic games is their nemesis. And there's many, many other variations of students out there. And so one of the things that we always say is, we think that you can improve, but let's talk about it. And that is different than what you hear from a lot of people in this field who are like, oh, I can definitely help you. The question isn't whether or not they can help you, it's how much can they help you and how much they know about where the deficiencies might be in your personal approach to this test. So when I look at a person who has a 165, I'm like, this is really promising, but let's look inside. Let's open up the hood and go inside and take a look and see exactly how you did because a 165 for you and a 165 for me might be produced by completely different performances. You can learn how to do better on this test, just like you can learn history. It's a different process, but it is something that without question can be learned. I mean, we wouldn't be in business if we weren't able to help people get better at the test. We've been doing this for a long time. I think the results are more than proven, but each person is going to be different. And even the tools that they might want to use are going to be different. For some people, a class is by far the most efficient approach. For others, it's self-studying with books. And for others, it's maybe getting a tutor. You have to find the right tools for what works for you. And anybody who says, oh, I have one single solution that works for everybody, they're not giving you the full or true story there. Yeah, your sports analogy was wonderful for a couple of reasons. To begin with, I've gotten really into this one podcast by this one doctor who's also a clinician. So he's not just like a theoretical doctor at Stanford. He's a Stanford doctor who also has a clinic. And he was talking about the same thing, that that like if you talk to a doctor who's just a researcher, 
they may say, do this one thing if you want to live to be 100. <laughs> but as a clinician, what he sees is, you know, some patients respond to this method. Some other patients totally respond to the exact opposite method <laughs> as far as longevity. He's a longevity doctor. <laughs> what it sounds like you're saying is the same exact thing with the LSAT. Some people respond to certain training methodologies well, and some people respond to other training methodologies. Yeah, I think, you know, from a technique and method standpoint, the way the LSAT tests logic is something that we feel obviously very comfortable with and we feel that the methods that we use are highly effective. But how a student learns those can really change from person to person. And that's the different delivery systems. Whether that's tutoring or a book, different people are going to respond differently. So it's very much like the way the doctor prescribed it there. You don't know what any individual is going to do with what they've got. Does it drive you crazy then when someone with no LSAT tutoring experience just pops up as a company? Because they're not the clinician. They haven't had patients, right? They're just taking a system arbitrarily, or maybe not. I don't want to be too harsh on people because some people have obviously done it well. You, you started <laughs> one day. But, you know, you see so many people pop up and, you know, they claim to have this system, but they've never had clients yet. So how would they know? Well, they would say that they tried it on themselves. and. Right. Therefore, it, it worked. Does it drive me crazy? No. It happens so often that if that kind of thing drove me crazy, I would have lost my mind years ago. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still here. I still seem you know, relatively sane. It's just one of those things where I think people want to do that. And I think a lot of people look at tutoring as a money-making thing. And in these days and times, I can certainly understand that mentality. So I don't really hold it against people when they're like, okay, I got a 168 on the test and I want to teach you logic games. Sometimes that's a survival strategy. Yeah. I'm going to try to focus on like adding value to the people who are applying this year who are listening to the podcast. But the money-making thing is fascinating because our company's been around for nine years. For eight years, a venture capital firm never called us. And now like every week I get a call from a venture capital firm. So what's the difference? Has Spivey Consulting gotten 100% better in a year? Of course not. These VC firms that know nothing about legal education or even higher education see the surge in applications this year. They're data-driven firms. And also the EDU space is really hot right now because everybody can see how it's moving online. Right. A lot of the right. VCs are right. very excited about that. As you and I have talked before, I'm extremely wary of VCs. They have one thing in mind, and that is just money, money, money. And that it's at odds with what our firm goal is, which is to help students first. So I'm wary, and I've told you that many times already. Yeah, and same thing. We're not going anywhere. I always think of the movie Pretty Woman. No one listening is going to know what I'm talking about. But go, I do. Go watch Pretty Woman. <laughs> right. You know, he was trying to gobble up these companies and then break them apart. And that old guy who had his company for 100 years was like, I just want to build great big ships. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we want that. to do. We want, we want to build great big ships. Yeah. I like working with students and so do you. And it's like, I don't want to go anywhere. I really enjoy what I do. And that's a, a wonderful thing to have found. So yeah, I'll, I'll be Agreed. here. Agreed. What question can I answer that's helpful for people applying today or tomorrow versus watching movies 30 years ago? <laughs> pretty Woman's a pretty good movie. And I love Richard Gere. He's awesome. What a great actor he is. Um, let's talk a little bit about underrepresented minorities because I want you to put rest to something that I hear online a lot and I see it asked a lot. And there were a couple questions that people wanted me to ask you about this and kind of goes like this. The rumor is that only some Hispanic people get ERM boosts while others don't. 
is that true is the question because this person is tired of everybody arguing. Right. And then there was right. a follow-up question where the person says, if you're a minority, but you're not an underrepresented minority, in this case, they specifically referenced being Venezuelan. How does that help your chances of getting accepted or doesn't it? So talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, and to me, they're sort of the same question because let's go back to why there are boxes on applications that say what ethnicity do you identify with. It's not so that the applicant can check a box. So in other words, the law school doesn't have the scanning machine that sees that you checked a box and then it gives you a three-point boost. It's the principle behind the question. So I think to answer the person who said, do some Hispanic applicants get a boost and do some not? The answer is probably technically yes. But why is the answer yes? Well, that's what matters. Well, okay, so let's say you have two applicants and they both are Hispanic and they both check the Hispanic box. And then let's say one of those two applicants writes a two-page personal statement about how their goal in life since 12 was the summit Mount Denali in Alaska. I believe that's the highest mountain in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they write this cool personal statement on summoning Denali and, you know, the challenges and maybe like at one point they turned back and then they said, you know what, I can do this. And they turned around and got to the top. I use this example because this is literally a personal statement I've read probably 150 times in my life. Just choose your mountain. <laughs> But there's nothing else in the entire application. Like the resume doesn't talk about being involved in any student groups, particularly cultural experience. They don't have a diversity statement. So yeah, that box is checked. In the same situation, now we're shifting to the second part of the question. I think what's helpful to know is don't worry so much about boxes checked. Worry about what perspective you're bringing to the law school. And this is where, I mean, this is where I love what I do because you can really alter your outcomes by taking your background and adding that perspective. And I'll give you the counter example to the Denali one. Let's say applicant number two checks the box or doesn't. It actually doesn't matter to me now. All four of their grandparents are from Venezuela and they were brought up in the United States. Let's say every year they go back to Venezuela, but on year one is to see their grandparents who live in the city. And in year two is to see their grandparents who live in sort of the country. And then they come back to the United States and they note the three perspectives that are just entirely divergent. Life in Texas versus life in a city in Venezuela versus life in the countryside of Venezuela. And they talk about how they evolved over time in the going home and seeing how the different cultures led to different opinions. Because what is a lawyer going to do? You're going to have clients from all over the spectrum of backgrounds. And you have to put yourself into that sort of perspective to represent them. So that kind of applicant, if that person is Venezuelan, yeah, they're going to get a boost. A huge boost. So I can see why the rumor would exist. I think some people are actually just doing a better job, perhaps, showing their perspective to law schools. And other people probably aren't showing their background and culture and perspective. And that's why you're seeing different results with maybe the same numbers, same ethnicity. But one person would get that second person. I I already want to admit them. <laughs> you know, I just I made up their application. And I want to admit them. You talked yourself into it. I talked myself into admitting applicant number two and applicant number one. You know, it might be a cool story, but you don't know anything about their perspective or their background or how they see the world differently. And yeah, they have a cool story, but it's also a story that you've seen a hundred times in admissions. Nice. Okay, my turn. Yes, your turn. We talked about LSAT score improvement. What would be the best way to do it? How would you prepare? And, you know, how much time do you need? How would you prepare to do it? 
You know, that question is, it's interesting as a follow up to what I was saying before, the answer is going to really change from person to person. But I'm if you don't mind, I'm going to answer the time question first. You don't really know the answer when you first talk to an individual student. It could be that they need two months. It could be that they need six months. So I always say this is that I've worked with many students who have said to me, I wish I'd had more time to prepare. I very rarely, maybe never worked with someone who said, I wish I'd prepared less. It just doesn't happen. And so when it comes to time and preparation, because of the importance of the LSAT in the admissions process, it's always been my view that it is better to give yourself as much time as you possibly can so that you can leisurely work your way through the material. And I mentioned history earlier, and like it's like a history test. It is in a certain sense that you're learning a skill, but a lot of exams in college that people are used to are very fact-based. You know, on the typical history exam, if you know a bunch of facts and dates about certain events, your score automatically goes up. And so when these students get to the LSAT, they think to themselves, I'll just learn this, this, and this, and I'll just raise my score in a very linear, consistent way. But the LSAT's not a fact-based test. It's a process-based test. You have to see reasoning, understand arguments, see gray areas, strengths and weaknesses. And that takes a lot longer. And so you can't just approach it by saying, I will study two hours and my score goes up one point. I mean, I wish it did work that way. Probably make my life a lot easier. (laughs) But that's not how it actually works. And so consequently, what I've found is that when people are under pressure and they're really trying to cram in a lot of information, it's a real challenge for them. And they don't really absorb it at a fundamental basic level. And that affects their score. Whereas students who have a lot of extra time and can take time off too for themselves, because you really need to have some like mental health days, it makes a really big difference for them. They're more relaxed about the process. Their learning seems to be faster, which is paradoxical because they're going more slowly. And ultimately that kind of like early start group has always seemed to result in a higher overall average score than the late start group right so from a timing standpoint try to take as much time as you possibly can and build breaks into your schedule now the second part of that question is what's the best way i don't know because i don't know who i'm talking to specifically and for person a it might be that a class is the best way that's you know not only the best financial decision it's the best educational decision in terms of like the learning that they get and the amount of material for person b it might be tutoring they might need just a few hours with somebody to kind of like focus them and point them in the right direction and for person c maybe they don't want to be in a class or they don't want to work with a tutor they need to learn it on their own That person's by far best served by self-studying and doing a lot of tests and reading a bunch of LSAT books and learning about how the whole test works. So all of those methods can and have worked in the past. And you really, as a student, need to go out and find the one that works best for you. And so that's what we try to do. I mean, we try to help students. And I always say, when somebody calls PowerScore and says, I need help, you know, with the LSAT, Our first thing isn't like, okay, you need to take our full-length course, (laughs) you know, or you need to buy this book. Our first question is, let's talk about it and tell me what you've done so far. We try to learn about what the person actually has done in order to give them the best possible advice. Right. Makes sense. I have a follow-up question, but I'll wait for my question and then I'll ask the follow-up question. The one thing you did say in there that's so – the timing is so coincidental as you you mentioned like self-care and everyone needs a day off. Right now, Anna Hicks, the COO of our company, is putting up a podcast I did yesterday 
on self-care during the admissions process. And I talk exactly about that. Like, you got to give yourself some days off. Good. Yeah. You know, I'll give you credit and us as well in the general sense. I see you talking a lot about like positivity and mental health. And you know that I like to talk about that a lot. And I've done webinars on it, written a ton of articles. I really feel like both you and I understand that this is a critical component to not just LSAT preparation and law school admissions process, but just life in general. And especially during these bizarre times that we're living in, sometimes people, they don't give themselves enough of a break. And so I see your articles on that all the time and I'm always like, yes, keep on with that. So there's another one coming in the near-ish future because I got so intrigued that I found one of the country's leading psychologists and mm. I got an hour of his time and we talked about anxiety and worry. And I'm going to try to like <laughs> summarize what he said. And a lot of these said was really fascinating. So many people, the worry in front of us is actually the worry behind us. Mm-hmm. So you think you're worrying about your application cycle, but you have a 180 and a 4.0. <laughs> so, you know, you actually shouldn't be worrying about that. You might want to be diving into like why it is every day you get up in the morning and think about retaking the LSAT, even though you have a 179. Yeah. And there are people out there like that. It is interesting to me because when I first started teaching the LSAT years ago, I did not understand the impact of test anxiety. It took me several years of teaching before I started to understand that it was one of the bigger nemeses that people faced when they were taking the test. Because I would work with students who knew so much about the exam and we would sit down and work on questions and they would just crush it. And then they'd get in the testing room And they would really struggle. And I began to realize how big of an issue it was. And that's why I started talking about it. And so I'm always happy when I see other people talk about it because I don't think it's represented enough as a point of focus and emphasis in terms of preparation or admissions. We've had clients use hypnosis before the test. I had a client dress up as Spider-Man to take the test. (laughs) Actually, it wasn't a client. It was an applicant who just told me about it. You know, because he was so uptight about it. He decided that you know he would do something that make him less uptight i love it yeah <laughs> whatever works you know you, I don't exactly care what you do. no one's judging <laughs> like yeah i see spider-man purple. walking down the street i'll go talk to that person <laughs> i love it that actually shows some kind of like character that's really interesting to me actually another cool tangential related note i actually had a client who never knew her lsat score you know she took it and she applied but she was too afraid or fearful of knowing what it was, so she never went in and looked. You know, I don't know that I've ever worked with anybody who was in that position. But I'll tell you an interesting fact. LSAC went to a process where to get your LSAT score, you had to have an LSAT writing result on your record. So the August test was the test they started doing this. And it was a really big test. There are still people who took the August LSAT, who have not done the LSAT writing and therefore can't get their results at this point. And they seem to be the cousin of the person that you're talking about, where it's like, you know, they just don't even want to know. They don't even want to get the result. And that, to me, is strange, number one. (laughs) But Agreed. (laughs) Some people just don't want to know. Right, Uh, right. Well, you know, I go to my doctor's office, and I don't want to know my blood work all the time either. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, these days, I don't want to know mine either. Exactly. All right, let uh, let me ask you a question about early decision and that process. You know, this question comes up a lot to me, and I'm sure it comes up way more to you. So how much of a boost is it yeah. to apply early decision? I am so glad someone asked that question. 
I am not a fan of early decision programs, and every year I become even less of a fan. Here's the best way I can describe it. If you and I went to Las Vegas, I know you have been to Las Vegas, and you were sometimes a your, few you know, times. company retreats are there. If you and I went to Las <laughs> Vegas, and we found a casino where blackjack favored us 55% of the time and the house only 45% of the time, how long would that casino be in business? They wouldn't have it. They wouldn't have a single machine, table, person in that casino room, including the people giving out the free alcohol, for that matter. You know, that's even a better example. I'd never thought of that before. That favors the house. <laughs> free oh, yeah. drinks favors the house because then you're <laughs> going to stay in the casino and gamble more. That mm-hmm. blackjack table that wins, I think it's, you, you might know better than me, but 51% of the time, is that right? The house yeah, wins 51? Yeah. 51.5 is what it used to be. It's down a little bit. Okay, so it favors the house. Here's what I mean by this. Law schools would not have early decision programs if they didn't favor the house. Nice. They're not going to like have this ED program and start admitting a bunch of people five below their median because their median is going to drop and then the dean of admission is going to get fired and they're going to bring in a new dean of admission who's going to change that policy. So the way to think of ED is think of it in the long run. If you have a dream school, if you have the ability to sort of deleverage scholarship negotiation, because again, if you get an admitted ED, it's not like you're going to be talking to four schools later in the cycle, pinging their scholarship offers off of each other to get more money. So first you got to check off those two boxes to begin with. Mm-hmm. Do I have a dream school? Is scholarship not high up on my list of what I need? Also, do I need a little bit of a bump at the school? I mean, if you, you know, if you're sitting on a 176 and a 4.0, probably would not apply ED to, you know, a top 10 school. You know, if Starfleet Academy is ranked number seven and I have a 4.0 and a 176, no, I, I still wouldn't apply ED there. So where does ED help? This is where it gets interesting. It doesn't help you on the front end. The house is only going to help the house on the front end. But if they throw you into the regular pool and then later, February, March, April, they start looking at people that were on their bubble That's when you get a boost because you are a yield protection data point. There is Mm -hmm. no better way to signal yield protection than to say, I will go to your school and withdraw all my other applications, which is what an ED program is. That's what you're saying to them. So you, you don't get the front end bump. But you do get a bump later in the process. And sometimes, I mean, we have strategies for some of our clients where we're not trying to get them admitted. This, this is going to sound so weird. You might get this, but I think a lot of people are going to say, well, what is he talking about? Our strategy is not to get them admitted. It's to get them waitlisted. Because the odds of them getting admitted, if they're like 2%, well, we would much rather you get waitlisted, which you might have a 30% chance at, then get denied, which you would have a 68% chance out, given the weird math I just did. So let's get you on the wait list, and then let's do things on the wait list to get you admitted. And interestingly enough, that boils down to one phenomena that I can't stress enough. It's you want admissions people looking at your application more often than not. I won't get into too many details there, but there are many things you can do over the, as the summer progresses to you know, subtly encourage people without forcing yourself upon them to look at your application one more time. And this is like undergrad admissions is the same thing. Every time an admissions officer takes 10 minutes to go pull your file, you're increasing your chances of being admitted. Hmm. So the ED program does that. It just does that later in the cycle. If you're going to get in, you're going to get in. But if you get thrown into the pool with everybody else, then that's where you get the boost on it. 
So I talk to people every year about whether they should apply ED, and it's more often than not no. But if when someone understands that, and that you know they're just hopeful to be waitlisted at their dream school, but they want to boost later, that's when it's helpful. Exactly. That's perfect because I've often said that ED bothers me at most schools because of the loss of financial negotiation. And I hate that. I don't want to see people pay for law school and go into debt for this if they don't have to. And ED is like, hey, we're taking you and now you don't have any leverage whatsoever. Right. The other cool thing about this scenario I just talked about is once they put you into the regular pool – you gain back all your leverage to scholarship negotiate. Yeah. Because you're not bound you're not bound to commit it. Now you have other offers. Exactly. Let me ask you a question that's kind of a follow up there. You talked about the wait list. In general, what do you think the percentage is at say a top fourteen school, maybe the bottom half of the top fourteen to get in off the wait list if you get onto it? Yeah, the the math of the wait list is really interesting. In fact I think I have a blog that's titled the interesting math on the waitlist. <laughs> so it might be exactly what I just said. The, the, the math of, of waitlist is, is really interesting because many more people are admitted off the waitlist than people realize. When I was in admissions at, you know, somewhat elite schools, top 20 schools, thousands of people were getting waitlisted. Thousands, two or 3,000. Columbia Law School, I, I see it, I did, I vowed I wasn't going to name a school. <laughs> Columbia probably waitlist four or 5,000. So interestingly enough, a lot of people get their admission from the wait list because a lot of people apply to a lot of schools. The typical yeah. applicant is applying to six, seven, eight, nine, ten schools. There was once an applicant, Dave, that applied to 182 law schools. I mean, can you imagine being like one of the 12 he didn't apply to? I would, I would, I would be spiteful. <laughs> Or he was made of money. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe or made of something. So, you know, by definition, you can only show up to one orientation. Point being this, if you're applying to a T10 school, you're probably applying to maybe T10 to T20. And if you're getting admitted to nine of those schools, A, congratulations, because that yeah. nine out of 10 would be really good. But B, you're telling eight schools no. And those eight schools are going to have to take you off their list and fill you with someone else. So as the summer progresses, what's interesting is it doesn't feel like waves to applicants as much as these like huge waves we're going to see in November and December. But there are. There's waves and waves and waves of waitlist admits. In a lot of schools, this is going to blow your mind, 50%, 5-0% of their entering class are people who came off the waitlist. Wow. That does blow my yeah. mind. So the, on the good news side of things, a lot more people get admitted off the wait list than people realize. On the bad news side of things, a lot more people are waitlisted than people realize. <laughs> so, you know, pick your poison. If a school is going to waitlist 3,000 people and you're one of them, you're in a huge group of applicants. But they may admit 750 people off the wait list or 500 people off the wait list or, you know, 400 people. So they're still admitting a good number of people off the wait list. I think that's fascinating. And I love the point that you made where it's like, let's say you got into nine out of the 10 schools you applied to in the top 20. You're telling eight of them no. And so that one person just opened up eight spaces or at least, you know, didn't claim a space at those other schools. And that has this networking effect where all of a sudden several people do that and a whole bunch of spaces seem to open up all over the place. Yeah, it's called summer melting in admissions terms. And summer melting happens despite the competitiveness of the cycle. There's some summer melting. There actually, I probably shouldn't sound so optimistic because this cycle there's probably going to be less waitlist movement than we've seen in the last four or five cycles. But there still will be these waves of waitlist movement that come out, for sure. 
it's still going to happen. And once the top schools have taken everybody that, you know, they want to take, you know how that trickles down a little bit. So hopefully we'll get more movement than you you know, fear we're going to get. Yeah, well, the cool thing about admissions, one of the cool things is there's never been anything demonstrably different no matter what year it's been. So every year there is summer melting. Every year there's weightless movements. Every year I get these awesome, happy, like, you know, direct messages in my inbox. I can't believe it. I just got into Harvard. I have a 168 in the 3.9. You know, I never thought this day would happen. So it's independent of the how competitive the cycle is. You still see that every year, and we'll see that this year. I think that's a really good point, too, because you talk about how different COVID is. You talk about the LSAT flex. We talk about the fact that this might be a more competitive admissions process. But the structural aspects of it are the same every year. It's still schools trying to get students. They're still using the same tools to do that. They're still putting people on wait lists and accepting them off the wait list. There's still ways for you to improve your application. A lot of the systemic aspects of applying are exactly the same. It's just that there's a lot of craziness that can cloud the vision that I think a lot of people have about the process. Why is admissions tough? Well, to begin with, people are never asked to write about themselves before. And number two is also you don't know what the school's looking for because you've never done admissions. So it's completely new. But number three is the interesting thing. It's really hard in today's world to differentiate signal from noise. Hmm. And the signal is going to be the same every year. You know, in 20-something years, the signal is always the same. The noise this year is just, you know, off the charts. And I think, you know, hopefully what this podcast or other people's podcasts or other people's blogs and and good applicants talking to each other is people will, will be able to discern over time where's the signal and what's the noise. Yeah. That's, you know, really the goal is to try to help people along the way to figure out what's real and what's not. Signal to noise or whether I call it, you know, systemic or structural, it's all the same type of idea that's floating around there to try to figure out what's real and what's not. Right, right. Some probably similar with the LSAT. It hasn't. I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it hasn't changed demonstrably over the years. Yeah, there have been little changes. You know, all of a sudden we've got a comparative reading passage. Obviously, the flex is the biggest change in ages for this exam to drop you know, one scored section and one experimental section, and then to have you take it at home, that's massive to me. But at the base of it, there's still logic games. There's still logical reasoning. There's still reading comprehension. It's still a 120 to 180 scale. So much of it is the same, but it's scary when something that you had expectations about suddenly changes. So yeah, we're both feeling it. LSAT strategies. I always give one that seems to be helpful for more people than not. Again, everyone's different. So some people think I'm crazy. Some people tell me to buzz off. Some people do it and it doesn't work. But one thing I tell applicants to do is to narrow the goalposts. And what I mean by that is in in football, there's no one more obsessive on a planet than a football coach. So many years ago, one coach had this brilliant idea that they would make a machine that would narrow the goalposts. So when their field goal kickers were kicking in practice, they would be kicking through these tiny goalposts. So what happens during the game? The goalposts seem incredibly wide, perceptually. <laughs> right. Right. So I stole that idea just one, you know, like seven years ago. It just came to me. Why don't you give yourself three minutes less time on each of your practice tests for a couple of weeks? Then take it again. See how it feels. And if it feels like you have a lot more time, do that before the LSAT. I mean, you know more about this than I do. So you might tell me I'm giving like horrible advice. But I've had a lot of clients say, I scored five points higher. So I'm going to do that 
again before the LSAT. To begin with, it's not giving bad advice, or does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) And number two, do you have any other like macro level suggestions like that? You know, you're not crazy. What you're doing is you're pressure testing them. And it's almost like the boot camp theory of joining the Marines or the Army where they try to put you through, you know, the worst situation right at the front so that when things really get bad later, you don't feel as terrible. It's still going to be terrible, but it won't be as bad. So what you're saying to students is, hey, really put yourself under a lot of pressure. Stress test yourself in terms of doing this and then taking the real one or regular section under normal time isn't going to feel as hectic or stressful or as terrible. So I'm, you know, I think that's good advice if you do it selectively. I wouldn't say do it every single time, (laughs) but I I love to have tools where you can say, try this, or if this isn't working, go here and check this out and move around a little bit so that each student doesn't get into a rut. To me, studying for the LSAT is actually really fun. I love the questions. I find it a cat and mouse game. I think the people who make this test are brilliant, and I don't think there's any question whatsoever they know what they're doing. So I love that battle of the mind, so to speak. But if you're doing the same thing constantly, it gets really boring. So from a macro level, the first thing I'd say is change it up. You know, do things differently from time to time. Sometimes do full tests. Sometimes do a practice test that's only, you know, half a section. Or do six sections if you want to go crazy. But then other times, just sit down and do one game or just one type of game. So vary it. But to me, the most important thing these days is we have these incredible tools at our disposal that allow us to analyze performance in a way that never existed before. People input their results directly into a computer. We can process it. And there are feedback programs out there, like our analytics program gives a wealth of feedback about how much time you spend on questions, the type of questions you miss. That, to me, is one of the biggest things that I tell people now is get reliable and quality feedback on your performance. We know these tests are done digitally. Right now, it's it's digitally at home. Use a system that allows you to input your answers and then get results that say a little bit more than you got a 165. LSAC has their program Law Hub that has a bunch of tests on it, and you take it online and, and so forth. My biggest complaint has been for a while, it just tells you what you got right and what you got wrong. It doesn't tell you anything about how you actually performed or, or if there were any patterns. So to me, the biggest macro piece of advice I can say is get a program that allows you to do that so that you can begin to see, oh my gosh, I'm missing must be true questions at a really high rate. Uh Uh-oh, that's going to have a major impact on every other type of question I do or whatever the the actual data point might actually be. The second point I would say on top of that is once you have that data, use it. Go in and review these questions. See why the patterns actually exist. Most people don't spend enough time on review. They want to do more questions and more questions because it's the new thing. The hard thing to do is to review questions. But to me, that's the most valuable because as an LSAT teacher, that's where I spent a lot of my time before class was like breaking down questions and thinking about how do I present this? What's the real idea here? What's the best way to attack it? That's what we want students to do. And so when you marry analytics of the kind that we provide and then you do the proper type of review, it becomes a really powerful engine to drive performance forward. Right. Is there like a tipping point where you get worried that if an applicant tells you, I've taken every single practice test, and here's my example, it's kind of fascinating. 
invariably in the cycle, someone will send me an email or message somehow that says, hey, I found the Spivey question. So there's a question in one of the old LSATs where it says, you know, Spivey and Quigley and two other people go into the room. There's even a backstory to that. It was right after I had finished the LSAC stats camp for the LSAT. They offer admissions officers this like statistics camp, and you mm-hmm. go for a day and you learn about psychometricians and psychometrics. Fun. Like that. And the guy who did it was Pete Pashley, who I don't know if he still does, but he's the guy who is the chief psychometrician for LSAC. And so I got to know Pete at that one day event. And he gave me his stats book, which was really cool. And then I appeared on the LSAT. So, you know, I feel like I, I, if nothing else, I hit it off with Pete Pashley. You were memorialized into the questions. I love it. <laughs> when someone sends me that, I'm like, man, they must be taking a lot of practice tests if they're coming across that old one. And they, they must be really, like, focused on test after test after test. I've always wondered if that's, like, a red flag for that applicant. Maybe it falls into that, you know, for some people it's helpful, for some people it's not. But is there a point where someone's taking actually too many practice tests and doing too less of another thing? And what would that other thing be? Yeah, there's definitely a point where that can happen. Sometimes I talk to students, they're like, all right, I'm taking a test in the morning and I'm taking a test in the afternoon. And right away, my view is slow down. And here's the reason why. They don't have time to review those questions, even if they're doing it as a flex exam. All right. And it's 75 questions in the morning and 75 questions in the afternoon or evening. Reviewing 75 questions the right way takes more than an hour or two. For some people, it'll take, you know, seven, eight hours for them to go through that. I tend to be really careful in how I analyze questions because I expect to be asked about them later. So when I review questions and I look at them and I try to break them down, it's not a speed race. This isn't the Indy 500 where you're trying to get through it as quickly as you possibly can. And so when I see people doing a whole lot of tests, my first thought is, well, it's good. You're proving to me you're a hard worker. And I think that's a really positive sign. But let's make sure that we work smart and hard. And so I will always ask them, tell me about your review process. And if somebody's like, okay, I'm logging all my misses and the questions that challenge me, I'm making notes about it. I really go through it. Then I come back to it, you know, a week later, I'm like, you're good. I used to have a student every time he had a game where he missed a question, he'd photocopy the game and they'd look at it later on. And if he missed it again, he'd add it to the pile where he'd look at it later on. And that's the right way to do it. Review questions multiple times over weeks, not minutes. Now, I'm more concerned about people who are like, oh, I did two tests. I'm like, you didn't do enough. Now the working hard aspect is in question. Right. But just doing practice tests kind of leads you to fall prey to the idea of it gets boring. That's why I'm like, mix it up and then use those practice tests to find where the problems are. Like some students discover I'm really bad at parallel reasoning questions. Like they keep missing them or they just start to hate them because they're so long. Well, just doing test after test never isolates that particular weakness. And so you have to remember to mix in things where you are doing focused study, where you're like, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do 20 parallel questions. And maybe that'll help me unlock the secrets of doing those questions because there are definite secrets to solving parallel questions. And the people who have figured it out know that most parallel questions aren't that tough. You just have to know what to look for. So it's not so much about doing a huge number of tests being good or bad. It's what they're doing around that testing experience that makes Makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And now you're off the hook. No more questions. Woo! I actually have like (laughs) tons I could ask, but they're 
so hyper specific. Like, what's the hardest question you've ever seen? June 2000 CD game is still the hardest game I've ever seen. Okay. All right. Everyone Google it. June 2000 <laughs> oh, it's, CD it's notorious. Trust me. Okay. Okay. Let's let's ask you a few questions. And to be honest, I could probably ask you questions for three hours. So many of these have gotten skipped over simply because it's like I knew we'd run out of time. Right. I want to ask you a question about interviews, though, because several people ask me not so much about like the interview process. A lot of people want to know how to differentiate yourself in an interview. So I'm interested in your thoughts there. What's your take on the impact that interviews can have to your admission chances? Yeah, it's another great question. I love this question for many reasons. One is now a majority of schools interview. And when I started this, I think there was only one school that interviewed. The evolution of this all, so you started interviewing transfer students. Why do I bring that up? Because we interviewed transfer students because you wanted to see their ability to get a job. So transfer students didn't impact your input data in U.S. News rankings, but they still impacted your output data, which was employability. Mm -hmm. So you would interview them because it wasn't that resource intensive there were only about 40 or 60 and you really wanted to see is this person capable of succeeding in a job interview if so we don't really care so much about their LSAT you know LSAT is a decent you know the exact data as well as I do it's a decent predictor of first year grade performance Mm -hmm. well we, we don't care because we already have your first year grade performance as a transfer student so we know that already so all we really care about now is are you employable so there was a time during the great recession these are scary numbers. I don't think we'll get close to these numbers again. So employment-wise, I think we're not going to have a recession like we did during the Great Recession for legal employment. But only like 30% of people graduating law schools were graduating with jobs. Hmm. So schools started saying, well, we need to not only admit people with good numbers, but we got to find people who are, you know, just hit home runs on interviews. So during that period, more and more schools started doing interviews, and the interview mattered a good deal then. Now it's sort of in between. I mean, the the employment picture is a lot better than it was then. I mean, you know, 50% better. So it's not this make or break thing. Generally, it's to weed out the people who are not going to interview to the point where they're going to interview themselves out of jobs in law school. So I wouldn't go into interviews like hyper-focused on, oh my gosh, you know, if I nail this, the school's going to admit me. It's more the opposite. It's more like, all right, is the person comfortable speaking into a video camera? On a, you know, some, some schools still do phone interviews. Some schools do recorded interviews. But it's mm-hmm. more, is the person comfortable? So there's actually research behind all this, and I know it because I was also a dean of career services at one point in my career. The research is really interesting. The number one thing people want in interviews is sincerity. And that to me is like the most comforting fact because if you think about the categories schools can ask you, if you think about not the micro level questions, but the macro level categories, I can only think of three, which is tell us about us, tell us about you, or tell us about your future aspirations. So In two of those three question categories, there's no wrong answer. It's how you say the answer because they don't know. They're asking you about you. You have all the information about yourself. So I think just even knowing that, going in knowing that, to me, it's really comforting because there's literally nothing they can ask that you don't know about yourself. So just say it with confidence and sincerity. And I use the word confidence. That's what the Journal of Human Resources says is the number two thing people are looking for is confidence. (laughs) 
So sincerity and confidence. I mean, the number three thing is how well you relate to the person interviewing you. But that's you can't like manufacture that. That's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. And the more you try to manufacture it, the worse it's going to get. Which brings me to the biggest mistake I see in interviews. The biggest mistake, surprisingly, is people who over-prepare. So like my firm has a list of all the interview questions every school has asked over the last several years. Mm-hmm. And for some of these schools, it's like 600 questions. Well, do you want to practice an answer for all 600 questions? Heck no. I mean, heck no, right? Just know yourself. Read the questions. Have a general outline of how you're going to answer them. But don't have memorized scripts because the second your mind goes to that memorized answer that you wrote out three nights ago at three in the morning because you were nervous about the interview, that's the second you start sounding robotic. That's what starts hurting people. When when people get too geeked up, too anxious, this is a tiny side thing. I've interviewed thousands of people in my life. I would never say something like, I'm really nervous right now, so I'm sorry. A better thing to do would be to just repeat the question back one more time. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's my biggest weakness? That's a really good question. Because as you're doing that, you're slowing yourself down. You're sort of giving yourself more time to think out the question. Yeah. The interviews are probably not quite as high stakes. The data suggests that at most schools, I mean, there are school, schools that interview everyone. So take out that cohort. The schools that just interview some people, they want to admit you. You know, at one of the top-ranked schools, I think 70% of the people who get interviewed get admitted. So you should go into that interview confidently. The toughest question I've ever heard, just to get off on a side note, I won't name the school. I couldn't believe they asked this. Because law school interviews tend to be pretty easy. Like, when I graduated from business school, I interviewed with a big five consulting firm. I had to do, like, some crazy algorithm to figure out how many gumballs were in a gumball machine. That was really helpful for your future consulting work. Yeah, well, I didn't end up at that firm because I probably (laughs) just sat there and stared at them blankly. In fact, I'm sure of it. So you'll never get a question like that. Most questions are going to be, tell us why you're interested in us. Tell us why you're interested in law school. Again, even that second question now, it's you. It's not them. They don't know. Mm -hmm. The only way to really mess it up is just get super nervous, super animated, or just, you know, or just sort of stare blankly. So the questions tend to be pretty easy. Why us? Why law? Tell us about yourself. Very standard, sometimes behavioral, but very standard. The toughest question I ever heard was, um, it was so interestingly worded. You find yourself alone on an island with your favorite book. How did you get there? <laughs> right? So your mind is thinking, all right, what's my favorite book that's going to impress this person? <laughs> you know, I don't want to say the sci fi thing I'm reading. Maybe I'll say Catcher on the Rye. And the next thing you know, they're asking you how you got stranded on this island. The answer one of my clients gave that was so spot on perfect is she said, Well, I can tell you how I didn't get here is through skydiving because I'm definitely afraid of planes. <laughs> so she probably got admitted. The toughest interview question I ever mm. received was when I was interviewing for associate deanship or whatever, the dean asked me, what movie would you show students to help them get a job? That's the other thing about interviews. You only have so long. You can't just sit there and think yeah. forever. I think I said Memento because it's that movie that's <laughs> it's backwards. So yes. my point was start with the end in mind, the end goal. <laughs> what do I want to do? And then work backwards from there. And, you know, he smiled and you got that positive affirmation. There's a phenomenon in interviewing and also public speaking called speaking to the happiness. This is very helpful if you're doing Zoom interviews. Look for those moments where the person nods their head in agreement. 
Yep. And that'll give you a confidence boost and sort of slow you down too. Nice. That's a great answer. I love that. That, that your answer was full of like great tips for the, you know, not just the importance of the interview process, but what they're looking for. So anybody who's got an interview coming up, definitely re-listen to that because I found that fascinating. We start off this back and forth with boring stories and hopefully we ended with great tips. <laughs> I only have one last question for you, Mike. Okay. This, this, this came directly from a student who said, is everything going to be okay? Yeah. I, you know, what's so fascinating about that question is I get it every year, no matter what, whether the cycle is tough or easy. Is everything going to be okay? Here's how I'll answer it. This is the most sincere answer and it's awesome to hear. During the Great Recession, so many of my students were graduating without jobs. And not just my students. I mean, you know, Stanford Law students, whatever, name your school. And eight months later, a number of them didn't have jobs because there was just a three-year period where no one was hiring. So I'm Facebook friends with a lot of these people today. I'm LinkedIn connected with a lot of them today. Or they just stay in touch once a year. They'll send me an email. Every single one of them is doing, if not good, great. They're at employers that they wanted to be at. The road was longer. I'm sure those eight months or 12 months of unemployment and living at home were horrible. I know it for a fact because I was talking to them during those times. But we're talking eight years later and everything is okay. This is what I would say to law school applicants this cycle. Some are going to get their dream school. Many are going to get, because this is the typical of law school admissions, not like your absolute dream school, but a school that you're happy with. What's going to happen? You're going to go to that school and you're going to fall in love with it. Your classmates are going to be, by and large, awesome. There will be a couple jerks. <laughs> your teachers are all going to seem brilliant. In fact, they're going to seem so brilliant. Pay attention to which ones seem to care about you because they'll all be brilliant. You'll become engrossed in the studying and what you're doing. You'll catch fire. Maybe you'll get a job right out of law school. Maybe not. But 10 years later, everything's going to be okay. Good answer. Good note to end on, I think. Yeah, this was awesome. I really enjoyed it. We got to do it again sometime. Yeah, we'll do it when we can get our haircuts. We'll do it in like a year <laughs> when we can, we can see each other over Zoom. Deal? I'm up for that. Stay safe, stay well. Thanks for the time, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Everybody out there, take care. Bye, everyone. <laughs>